doing a series on Sunday mornings looking at what we've been calling the story of God. And it's really this overarching 30,000 above the Bible, sea level view of the entire storyline of the Bible. And it's based upon this presupposition. The presupposition is that this series of what we call 66 books um, is actually a library of 66 books um, written by multiple different authors over uh, several centuries on three different or several different continents over a lengthy period of time. And they tell one unified story, one unified story. We've been saying that all along. And the question that you need to ask right now is like, what, what is a one unified story? Well, you get to jump in to the punchline today. Like the whole uh, spoiler will happen right now. Like this is a spoiler alert of all spoiler alerts. You, you will learn. I mean, hopefully you've been paying attention, any attention at all. Uh, you already know what the main punchline is. But today we are going to talk about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the main purpose and point of the entire storyline. He's the climax of the entire Bible. And so we've been already talking about Jesus this past several weeks as we've been looking at the entire storyline. But today is exclusively just the story of Jesus and how Jesus is unique and how he plays into this fulfillment of what had begun centuries prior to Jesus even coming onto this planet. Meaning that Jesus was actually fulfilling something that God had already preordained for this to be taking place and fulfilling. So just out of curiosity... How many of you here, whether or not you were brought up in the church or you grew up having grandparents or mom or dad that knew Jesus, how many would you say that you have a, you have a pretty high familiarity with the story of Jesus? Pretty familiar with the story of Jesus. Okay. That's a lot of you. Now, I, I want to I add to that and say something to just spe- specifically you. Every one of you are in the highest level of danger. Every one of you that are familiar with the story of Jesus. I'll tell you why. The greater familiarity we have with the story of Jesus means that the lesser sense of awe we have with that story. Meaning it just becomes rote. It becomes routine. It becomes something that doesn't awe us or shake us or just rattle our cage. Because we have this tendency to become overly familiar with the story. We tend to read things. Not with this expectancy sitting on the edge of our seat of like, what's going to happen next? We have this sort of unspoken, like, I already know what's going to happen next. Jesus will heal, heal some guy. Some dude will be, like, full of leprosy, and Jesus will speak to the leprosy, and he'll be gone. Some weird, crazy lady who can't walk straight, he'll say to her, stand up straight, and she'll walk straight. Jesus will feed a bunch of people. I already know the story. Do you realize what you just did? You just took this incredible story that literally would have blown minds, and you've domesticated it. You're not awed by it. You're not shocked by it. You're not wowed by it. You're in a dangerous spot. So there you go. There's my warning. Now, as we jump into the story, my hope, my hope, as we reread the story, especially for those of you that are, those of us, I would even say, are, are familiar with the story, that we would read this with a new sense of awareness of what's happening, of what's taking place, of the context. And if you are unfamiliar with the story of Jesus, glad you're here. Glad you're here. Our, our hope would be that, that as you are hearing this, maybe for the very first time, or for, you know, just a couple of times into it, that you would learn something new and gain some sort of new perspective about this incredible man slash God and what his mission, what his purpose was upon this planet, not just as an isolated historic figure, but ultimately as the very climax of this book that we began to read at the beginning of the year, as we are reading, literally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from Genesis to Revelation as, as a church. It's, it's called the Year of Biblical Literacy. That's what we're doing. 
And that's why we're doing these teachings on this, to help us to become reacquainted uh, if you are already acquainted with Jesus or to be acquainted if you aren't really familiar with Jesus for the very first time. This incredible world changer. So let's jump in. I want to read the story. Um, did you guys already get Bibles? Yes? Okay. Open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to pick up the story. I'm just going to read the story, a uh, large portion of the story, so you'll have to follow along. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to jump in. We'll kind of backtrack and take a look at how this plays into the rest of what's happening here in the storyline. So let me, let me jump in. I'll pick it up at around verse uh, 14. Um, Mark has already introduced to us a little bit um, uh, about a guy by the name of John the Baptist. I'm not going to go back into his story. He does play a significant role, but I want to focus specifically and primarily on Jesus. So verse 14 starts with the second sentence in that paragraph, and it says this. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Next movement in this story. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on a little bit further, he came and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee, who was in the boat, and the hired servants, and they followed Jesus. Verse 21. Next movement. And then they went to Capernaum, which is just sort of like the next village down the way. It says, and immediately on the Sabbath, which would have been either a Friday night or a Saturday... Um, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, which is sort of the local church community. It was the main social networking community part of the entire area, region, little village. There. Everybody was at the synagogue for the most part. It says, and they were, um, and he entered in the synagogue and was teaching. And they were all astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So, so, so Mark, immediately we assumes that as you're following along, you're paying attention, you're going to ask this question. What does it look like to teach with authority? What does authority look like? If, you, if you're Jesus, if you're following along the story of Jesus, you should be asking the question, what does authority look like? How does Jesus get connected to the authority? What does authority from the life of Jesus look like? And then it goes on to say in verse uh, 25, and immediately, which is a, a key word that Mark uses all the time. If you follow along Mark, Mark's sort of like this fast-paced uh, narrative, journey through the life of Jesus. He's always using the word immediately. He says, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to here to destroy us? That's the point you're supposed to be asking, what in the world is happening? Like church has gone crazy. Like who, who is this guy? Um, like what's happening to him? He's obviously tormented. Tormented by what? By an unclean spirit. What's an unclean spirit? Again, all of these are questions that for the most part, uh, they're, they're just pointing out there's some sort of demonic force or some sort of unspoken, intangible force that has control and authority over this, this man's body to the point where he speaks out. Imagine uh, someone confronting me in the middle of, of a message what are you doing here? Or Jesus, what are you doing here? And what authority do you have to speak to us? And then Jesus confronts or challenges, receives the challenges, challenge of these demonic forces. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. 
And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, because that's what happens. When someone who's gone crazy, convulsing, screaming, yelling, bloody, blood-curdling shouts, because some sort of demonic activity is going on. And then all of a sudden, Jesus yells at this demon, says, come out, and a demon comes out, and this person who was once mad, crazy, tormented, now, calm, silent, and everybody is in utter amazement. And then they question among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? And commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue and he entered in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. These are the four brothers, two pairs of brothers, four men that we had heard about earlier in the story. And then now Simon's mother-in-law, she lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and that the whole city was gathered together at the door. And they healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons and would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. What's going on here? Jesus is not permitting something happening. So prior to Jesus, apparently these demons, forces, whatever they are, they were permitted. They, they just had free reign over the host, the subject, whoever it was that they were pressing. In the presence of Jesus, Jesus says, you're not permitted. There's, there's a new authority in town. There's a new power that you've got to deal with. And here it is. You're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to do what you do. In verse 35, and then rising early in the next morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place. And there prayed. Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And then he said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I might preach there also. And for what, this is for what I have come. And then he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, and casting out demons. This is the story of Jesus. This is the word of God. So, what's happening here? Well, Mark starts out by saying that Jesus shows up on the scene and he makes his proclamation. We'll actually come back and we'll end with this proclamation. But in short, the proclamation that Jesus comes on the scene saying, it says that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he adds a responsatory type of statement for the hearers to respond to. He says, repent and receive the kingdom of God. So Jesus shows up. And he announces, I'm here. The kingdom of God has come. So something about Jesus' presence is this reality that he showing up is now the one who's bringing in, ushering in God's kingdom. So question naturally you and I should be asking is what in the world is the kingdom of God? What is this? What is this language that Jesus is employing? Now, again, remember I've said this to you multiple times, that when reading the Bible, we, we have to not read it on our terms. So if you're reading this and you're like, kingdom of God, and you're trying to figure out ways by way of modern metaphor what in the world the kingdom of God is, um, that's not the right way to do that. You, you need to ask, how would this have been understood in the first century? Uh, and more importantly, how is this understood within the Bible? And that's what I hope to explore right now, is to ask the question, what in the world does it mean, the kingdom of God? Because whatever it is, Jesus is claiming that it's here. 
and I'm the embodiment of that. Following? How are we all doing? Let's jump in, and I want to begin to take a look at this question. And the question that I want to look at, I think I have a slide for this, hopefully it's working, good, that is uh, what it looks like for the ruler to rule. So God uses his name for himself oftentimes to describe himself as the king. Jesus is described as the king. But when we describe the action of a king, we would say that a king does what? What does a king do? King rules. But the way that the Hebrew language could be used is that a king kings. Again, we don't use the word kings as, what is that? Is that a verb? Is that right? right? I'm not very good at English, but the idea is, hence some of the reasons why you have misspellings on these things, but the idea behind that is that a king, king. So that's not good English. So what we would say is that a ruler rules. So the question is, if a king and a ruler are kind of the same thing, synonymous terms, um, what does it look like for God, who's a ruler, to actually rule? And has God at times, because again, remember, Jesus is showing up and saying, hey, the king is kinging. The ruler is now ruling. The kingdom has now been initiated. And, and it's, it's in me. It's through me because I'm the king. This is the claim. This is the radical claim that Jesus is making. Now, the fact of the matter is, is many of us, we have been raised on what I would describe as a, as a, as a highly moralized, domesticated version of Jesus. Here's what I mean. We tend to think of Jesus as really nothing more than a long-haired guru that walked around and taught really nice, short, pithy statements and gave good moral advice. We tend to think of Jesus as being nothing more than a good teacher, which he was a good teacher, of course, but he's far more than that. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus did not get publicly humiliated, publicly tortured, publicly crucified because he was a good teacher and I would even say Jesus did not have all that happened to him simply because he was telling people about how to get life after death. Jesus was publicly humiliated and crucified and tortured because his message was of an alternate kingdom. Can you understand, if you're Caesar, this present ruling power, that if you have a message or messenger that comes up and says, I am a rival to your throne what your right response would be. Well, let me ask you this. If you claim to have authority in your house or in your car or in whatever zones you feel like you rule, if you own a business, you rule your business, or if you have whatever, wherever you exercise your domain, if someone were to come in and challenge your authority, how would you respond? You'd fight. You'd put up resistance. That's exactly what Caesar did. He recognized that whatever the case was, Jesus' message was not just about how to get to heaven when you die. Jesus' message was not just how to live a good moral life by loving other people. Jesus' message was radically subversive to the status quo. Because it was a message about another kingdom. It's about another king that's exercising his authority here, now. Not just someday in the distant future, but right now. It's beginning to break through. Remember, Jesus shows up and says, right now, the kingdom has come. It's been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. So again, what is the kingdom of God? And more specifically, as we ask the question, what does it look like for the ruler to rule? I guess that's a question. See, there should be a question mark at the end. I told you I'm not good at grammar. So what it looks like, maybe that is a statement. What it looks like for the kingdom of the ruler to rule? Anyways, back on track. I want to take a look at at least three movements that we see God demonstrating his rulership and what that looks like. The first 
way in which God demonstrates his rulership is in the act of what we would call creation. And we looked at this very first week. Do you know this? That the very page one of the Bible is actually an act in which God, the king, the cosmic king, the king over all things, king of the universe, king of all things that are seen, things that are unseen, in which this king exercise, exercises his dominion, his rule in a very profound, powerful, and tangible, like tangible way. This is what we see. I'm going to read that story to you in Genesis chapter 1. We see that, first of all, Yahweh creates. The second thing that we see is that Yahweh actually shares his creation with humans to rule over it. This is the most amazing thing about what God does, this king, that this king, this Yahweh king, this king is a king that shares. Let's just pause and think about that. God is not a hoarder. God actually shares his creation. So, for example, if you are a mom or dad, or if you've been trained by a good mom and dad that has taught you how to share, good job. You are actually learning attributes of the creator God. And so if you are a parent, keep pressing through the challenges and the resistance of your little child that is constantly not wanting to share, because that is, a, that is, a, that is, that is an attribute of the God who created all of us. He does share. In the way he does this, he shares with Adam and Eve. So here's the two passages I want to read real quickly. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26. It says right here, up on the screen for you. It says, as God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion. That's kingdom language. It's kingship language. Let them, let human beings have dominion. What's their dominion? What's their kingdom to be over? He goes on to say, it's over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Again, it's a recitation, repeat of the initial mandate that God says to Adam and Eve, you will share in the dominion that I'm giving to you. I'm sharing with you the reign over planet earth. Now, just to reiterate this, to just so that this is not a movement that happens in the opening chapter of the Bible, uh, Psalm 8 goes on to say this. I have it up here on the screen as well. This is uh, the psalmist reflecting upon what we call this creation narrative as he's thinking about what God has done. Listen to what it says. What is the man that you are mindful of him and you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, angels or you know, unseen creatures, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. And you have put, you've given dominion um, over the works of his hands, and you put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So the question is, is this a high view of man or a low view of man? It's a very high view of man. The psalmist is reflecting upon the fact that human beings are not just evolved chimpanzees. They're not just a higher improvement upon, uh, you know, bipedal upright. There's something unique about human beings. We are radically distinct from anything else that breathes upon this planet. Do you know that? This is one of the reasons why when another human being gets sold into a sex traffic, that should cause you to get angry. When somebody is humiliated or a woman is sexually or physically or emotionally abused or anybody's sexually, physically or emotionally abused, that should cause you to bristle and realize that is not okay. Why? Because you bear the image of God. You're not an animal that can just be trafficked, that can just be locked in a cage. That's not who you are. We bristle against that. You should bristle against that because that is not reflective of how God created things. 
So God creates all things, and there's this radical dignity that God gives to humanity and radical ability for humanity to thrive and flourish. It's called ruling over this planet. So in order to rule well, goes on to the very next idea is in order to rule well we have to have a skillful knowledge of good and evil so the question is where do we where does one get the skillful knowledge of good and evil from this becomes the main crisis point over what we call the tree of knowledge of good and evil this becomes the main issue that happens where the serpent says you can take the knowledge of tree of good and evil for yourself you can decide it's up to you you make the choices in other words what was really happening there in the garden was the temptation was you don't need this external God, cosmic voyeur watching over you, telling you what to do. You have dignity and value. You're powerful. You can do this yourself. You don't need God's help. And what happened, and apparently in the storyline, God knows that the choices to make wise decisions that lead to goodness or evil is actually so large that we as human beings do not do a good job at managing the two well. Would you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, just watch the news and then let's, let's have a chat afterwards. Because apparently there's something really, really wrong on our planet. There's something really wrong with humanity where in some cases, some people actually think it's okay to drop nerve gas on its citizens and call that good. And some people think it's okay to actually strip a woman naked and pay her a lot of money and take photographs of that. And some people actually think it's okay to rape somebody else. Or some people think it's okay to have a doctor and operate as a well-skilled doctor in a very protective field and take advantage of other people. We don't have the proper ability to discern between good and evil, apparently. And left to ourselves, we make bad choices all the time do you agree with that and what god is saying from the very beginning i'll be the one to help you discern between good and evil you you need me you're dependent upon me to make good decisions to make wise decisions that lead to life and flourishing and help and wholeness and 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 beauty amongst other people you need my wisdom in order to do this but if you choose your own path it, it will it will take you another course and we know that course it's what we call planet Earth today. What we see is Adam and Eve, next little point, is this hostile takeover happens. I, I like to think of it this way, is that Adam and Eve, they seize autonomy to determine good and evil for themselves or to put it in this context. It's like the shift manager. A shift manager claims ownership of the business. So imagine if you go into one of the many coffee shops in San Luis Obispo and the, you know, shift manager, the co-shift manager even, right, the Dwight Schrute of the agency, uh, automatically says, I'm in charge now and I will govern this place how I want. I don't like the coffee. I don't like the art on the wall. I don't like the little, you know, knickknacks that are in this place. I don't like the decoration of this place. I'm going to completely do a hostile takeover and make it into something different. By the way, that's planet Earth right now. We live in a realm that has been redefined by this hostile, by the, by the post-event of this, what we would call this hostile takeover. Humanity has taken authority in its own hands, and we live in a world that has now been marred or ruined rather than consistent goodness. Next slide. As we go on to continue to think about this, is we see that Earth, creation, humanity, they are now this realm of suffering due to the effects of this hostile takeover. This is what we would describe as death reigning. 
So the question is, is humanity reigning? Yeah, not really. I mean, yes, humanity is reigning. There are ways in which humanity reigns, but there's a limit. I mean, what I mean by that is, is y'all kind of die. You, you know that, right? So at some point, something else will take ownership of your body. We call that death. We will all die. You're welcome. The fact of the matter is, is we aren't reigning as human beings the way that God intended for us. Because there is another tyrant, oppressor in town that needs to be defeated. Death. Death comes into place by way of sin. Paul actually put it this way in Romans. He says, the wages of sin are, you guys know that one. Wages of sin is death. Wages of rebellion. Wages of missing God's, God's heart leads to not life, not flourishing, not greater love, but actually death. And Paul would later go on to say this. He uses multiple ways to identify, describe the realm, what we call planet Earth, to live in. He describes it as the course of this world that is actually in accordance with the principle of power there. Would you agree with that? Like our world, the system, other places Paul would describe it as the flesh. Our world is actually under the influence, is intoxicated by another system. Paul says it's actually intoxicated or it's according to the, uh, in accordance with the prince or the power of the air. It's another way, I think, of describing this evil, dark force that's at work in our planet. Paul would later describe it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, as his present evil age. Right? So the question that we have to keep asking is, what will God do to reassert his rule over his creation in light of humanity's rejection of it? Which, by the way, this is the main plot conflict of the entire Bible. Like this, if you're wondering, like what's the main plot? This is it. What will God do? How will God bring about some sense of resolve to this tension? Because humanity was made by God to flourish, to bear his image, to create good, to do good, and yet is not. And therefore, humans suffer, planet Earth suffers, relationships suffer, everything suffers because death now has charge and death has all sorts of minions that cooperate with it we can call that pharaoh nebuchadnezzar caesar you we all have some level of cooperation with this tyrant that currently rules but god loves this world and will not just watch it go by so he we have the question, is how will God reassert his rule over it? So as we continue in the story, I want to move on to the very next thing. We see that God moves into this relationship with Abraham. It's uh, Genesis chapter 12, I believe, somewhere right, right around there. We had actually did an entire message on this. Next slide. It says that Yahweh formed his covenant with Abraham and to be this alternate kingdom, to be in contrast to the larger form of society. And that's so as Abraham partners with God, says, yes, God. He is saying yes to whatever Yahweh wants. If that means circumcision, yeah, uh, Abraham gets circumcised, circumcises all of his household. Whatever the laws or rules or ideas that God lays upon Abraham's heart, Abraham is to follow. And, and by doing so, is to be this contrasting type of society. Uh, they were to follow Yahweh's lead, discerning of discerning good from evil. And that's exactly what Abraham did, for the most part. I mean, Abraham was an exceptional guy, but he wasn't perfect. And then going on, as we move on to the very next slide, we go on to see that Abram, his family grows. As his family grows, this kind of moves into the second um, phase in which we see that God is going, to, what it looks like. We're asking the question, what does it look like for the rule to actually rule? And this kind of moves into what we would call deliverance. So first is creation, second is now deliverance. So as Abraham's family grows, they become this enslaved uh, community down in Egypt. 
uh, we see that Pharaoh, he's the main driving force behind the enslavement in Egypt. He is the king, by definition, a king. That should automatically cause your ears to go up, a king. Oh, king. But in reality, again, in the storyline, he's a parody king. He's a parody king. He's not just like Yahweh. He's a different king, right? And the question is, what type of king is Pharaoh? He's a really bad king because he's a king that actually defines good and evil according to himself. King Pharaoh, what we begin to discover about him is that he actually is power hungry. He's oppressive. He takes advantage of the people. He uh, brings, he basically has their, his boot upon their neck and they are oppressed people group. Uh, his good and evil are so, the wires are so crossed that Pharaoh actually thinks that it's okay in the name of progress to kill babies. Shocking. We haven't progressed that much as a society. He offers to have everyone, or not offers, but makes a demand for all of them to be put to death. And why, why is this? What's happening? Well, Pharaoh is setting himself up as the uniform, the, uni, the, 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 the unifying force behind all these kingdoms. He is the voice of right and wrong. So whatever Caesar says is right, is right. Whatever Caesar says is wrong, is wrong. And his world is upside down. And as a result of that, he brings oppression upon this people group. And yet God loves the descendants of Abraham. He raises up a prophet, a guy by the name of Moses. And then what Moses does, he comes on the scene, he confronts evil that's embodied by Pharaoh. He comes to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, the way that you're treating God's people, God says, no more. Pharaoh's response is exactly what you imagine it would be. Who's, who's Yahweh? I don't know you. I don't know your God. And why would you be telling me, like, I'm God. I'm, I, am the, I am the son of God, Pharaoh would say, right? He's the son of Ra, sun God. That's me. He's the embodiment of God upon this planet. Uh, I don't know your God. And why would you ask me or tell me, worse, tell me to let these slaves go that are funding my entire enterprise? And then Moses' response is because God said so. There's another king, and you're in direct conflict to that king. And this king, King Yahweh, is demanding you let his people go. You can remember... He basically takes off his gloves. God takes off his gloves too. And you remember the conflict that happens. We would have those, ten, those plagues that begin to come forth, ultimately leading to what we would call the Passover, where Pharaoh's firstborn son, uh, next up, next king, his you know, lineage, which everything is going to be given to him, uh, is ultimately destroyed. And what we see is Exodus chapter 15, and actually 14 and 15, is God exerting his kingship. And I want you to listen to this story, this song that's actually put to music in Exodus 15. This is a song that they had written. Just listen to the words of it. Um, and it's a song that talks about the, the event, what happened when God brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea. This was by definition, according to the song, Yahweh asserting his kingdom. Listen to it. Then Moses and the people of Israel, they sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed Glory, gloriously, and he's hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength. Whenever you see the word, capital L, capital O, capital R, D, uh, that, that's, that's a Hebrew word for Yahweh. So uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is my strength and my song, and he has given me victory. This is my God. And I will praise him. Last stanza of the song, he says, the Lord will be king forever and ever. This is a way in which God is saying, I will exert my kingship. And how does God do this? Twofold. Number one, he confronts the forces of, of evil. 
Secondly, he liberates people. And thirdly, I think you can add a third part, is what we see immediately following this. God actually invites these newly liberated or uh, emancipated people into relationship with himself. We would call this covenant. This is what it looks like when God shows up. This is what it looks like when God asserts his kingship. So let's move on to the final ones. We saw deliverance take place. Uh, again, we asked this question. Israel, we ultimately see they respond to God not by faithfulness, but by unfaithfulness. And so we see this long history. So again, the Old Testament is a really long book, and it's filled with story after story of Israel's unfaithfulness to this covenant-making God, Yahweh. And yet God constantly not giving up that the people whom God has rescued to ultimately live under his reign, to be this counter community, they end up becoming just like every other community. They, they end up becoming, so by the time you get to the life of Solomon, which is kind of an interesting twist and story in the plot, is there's a sense where you think it's hopeful. Solomon's going to be this amazing king. Well, who does Solomon marry? He marries the queen of, or the daughter of Pharaoh. What does Solomon do? He amasses for himself wives. And we're talking a thousand women Solomon's having sex with and relationship with. And it's just pretty bad. Solomon amasses his army, becomes this radically militarized community. And at some point you're scratch your head and be like, what the heck? Israel looks a lot like Egypt. Yes, it's exactly what's happened. Israel, the very community that was to be this alternate Counter-cultural community has become just like the rest of society that has gone by the way of the sewer. And so they themselves need rescue and then saving. So we see the third movement where the prophets begin to speak up. And God was faithful to communicate through them. One of the great prophecies is from Isaiah. There's a lot of them, but this is just one that's pretty amazing. It says this as he thinks about the future. And again, this is written some 700 or so years before Jesus was even alive. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings the gospel. The good news. The good news. That's what good news means. Gospel. A peace. Of rescue. That's what salvation means, by the way. If you think of salvation as where you're going to go when you die, you've been tainted by a Western thought of salvation. You need to think the way that they would have thought. Salvation means rescue. It does also mean, it can mean, salvation when you die, when you, where you go after your postmortem. But it means God's immediate rescue right now from something, for something. It says a peace and salvation, the good news that the God of Israel is king. The watchmen shout and sing with joy, for before their very eyes, they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem, Yahweh returning to Jerusalem. The image, the question you're supposed to ask is, when will God, when will Yahweh show up in Jerusalem? You following? And he finishes, let the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful song, for the Lord has brought relief to his people. This leads to the final thing into the ultimate climactic story of Jesus. Now back to the story of Mark chapter 1. Jesus enters into the scene. Verse 14 says, Jesus came into Galilee, into that region, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now arrived. Did you get that? 
to be sitting there in the shoes or sandals of those first century people is to sit amidst a bunch of people that are under the oppression of a Roman militarized occupation, meaning they're not free. They're living underneath the boots of another person. They're oppressed. They're broken. They're ruined. And yet they recognize that we are God's people. How come God is not delivered? How come God hasn't shown up? How come God hasn't delivered us from this oppression and our sickness and our brokenness and all these things? All these things that God had promised in the past through people like Isaiah the prophet. When will God show up and show forth his salvation? And Jesus bursts upon the scene and says, it's now here. It's arrived. God's kingdom has come. Now the question that we need to finish with is what does it look like, again, for God to assert his rule? been the big question we've been asking in the back of our mind more specifically now we see as it comes into sharp focus with jesus what does it look like specifically for jesus to take charge and rule so that's the question what does it look like if jesus is god come what does it look like for jesus to take charge and rule and this is where it gets pretty amazing because we just read the story that jesus takes a walk around a lake strolls he walks up to people And he says, hey, you, mending your nets, you who are in the boat, working for your dad, come follow me. I just want you to think about this for a moment. If you were to walk into one of the many many, uh, various uh, coffee shops in San Luis Obispo and walk in there and just single out somebody and be like, hey, you, follow me, you would be perceived as a nut job because that's what you would be. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus himself shows up on the scene. I mean, do you realize uh, the Hebrew word for this would be huspah? Like Jesus has a sense of like, wait, what? The audacity. It's almost like he's walking around as if he owns the place. You would be correct. <laughs> he says, come follow me. He walks into a synagogue. He teaches scripture. Like Somebody that they've never heard teach before because he teaches as one who has authority. We're back to that question. What does it look like to teach with authority for Jesus to have authority? What does that look like? And all of a sudden, this guy starts writhing in craziness because he has this demonic torment happening. And this demon, so whatever it is, it speaks and says, Jesus, why are you here? You are the most high son of God, right? Imagine that outburst of craziness in the midst of the Bible study. And Jesus turns to him and says, be silent. And come out of him. And immediately it comes out and it's silent. And this man who was once tormented is now free. It looks like he has authority. It's as if Jesus truly is king. That his kingdom is invading this present evil age. And all that is oppressing, all that is destroying it. So again, the question is, as we see Jesus walk around inviting people to come in, to follow, to trust him. What does it look like for him to bring his authority or to bring charge over these things? I think there's three things that I think about with regard to this, and I'll wrap it up. Number one, we see that enslaving powers or evil are ultimately dealt with. They're confronted and they're dealt with. The second thing, I'll come back to this, is that enslaved people are delivered from whatever those enslaving forces are. Thirdly, we see that these emancipated people are now invited to live under the authority of King Jesus. 
That might be shocking for us, but let's go through these, each three, one, uh, these three again and just finish it up. Number one, enslaving powers are dealt with. What does it mean for Jesus to address and to deal with these enslaving powers? And how far down does Jesus go to deal with these enslaving powers? See, first century Jews, they assumed falsely, but assumed wrongly, that Jesus, the way that he was going to address the enslaving powers, they saw the enslaving powers as being nothing more than a sort of flattened form of a neo-pharaoh. They saw Caiaphas, the high priest. They saw Caesar, who is the king of Rome. They saw him as just sort of another pharaoh that needed to be tromped on. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, there is an evil beneath that evil. See, Jesus is not just trying to get rid of child sex trafficking in planet Earth. He will deal with the actual lust that drives it. His aim is not to just simply take care of the imbalance between the rich and the poor. His aim is to deal with the very fact that we love money and authority and power over him. These are the real sources of evil that are unleashed upon this planet, that are soiling it and vandalizing it and destroying it, that Jesus has come to set it right. Do you understand this? It's amazing when you think about what he's up to in this world. So he shows up. And he confronts and challenges these evil, ultimately to the point of on the cross. I want you to think about this. Jesus, on the cross, in the darkness, stripped naked. I've said this before. The whole loincloth thing was an addition to somehow bring dignification to the naked body on a piece of art. Jesus would have been stripped naked. You would have seen his naked body dripping blood, Bearing the weight of evil upon himself. This is when Jesus climaxed and empowered by God to overcome evil. Ultimately allowing evil first and foremost to do to Jesus what evil does to you and I and to this world constantly every single day. He allows this evil to overcome and overtake him in its fullness. He's addressing these enslaving powers. Secondly, we see that Jesus uh, takes these enslaved people and he delivers them. So this is what Jesus does. He takes these forces, these powers that are at work in this world, and he delivers them. Whether it be a woman who is tormented by a demon, he sets her free. Or another person that has cripple in their hand, Jesus heals their body. Or somebody that has some sort of sickness inside their heart. Or they are, you know, sitting under the boot of some form of other external pressure. Jesus delivers and sets these people free. Or somebody that is just off in the margins of society because they have been dehumanized and humiliated and not accepted in the broader culture at large. Jesus comes to them and he rehumanizes them redignifies them by setting them free, giving them a new identity, a new name. And then finally, we see that these emancipated people that have been set free, Jesus then invites and says, come, learn to live underneath my rule. That's what the rest of the New Testament is all about, by the way. And if you want another great sermon on this, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Mark, or Matthew chapter 5 to Chapter 8, it, this, is, this is literally the charter of what it means to live under the rule of Jesus. And if you've ever read it, at some point, you should bristle against it because it addresses every part of what it means to be human. Jesus 
has opinions about what it means for you to live as a human. What that means, he has ideas as to what it means for you to live with money. Should you be stingy? Should you be generous? Should you hoard? Should you give it away? And he has something to say about your sexuality. Do we get to choose? Do we get to decide? Or does God have something else for us? This is what Jesus invites us to. Living under the rain, Jesus is actually the most liberating thing that could ever happen to us. In fact, I would finish with this thought and say this, that ultimately what it means for us to live under the reign of Jesus is actually the most amazing thing that could ever happen to us. I had written it this way, that coming under the authority of the power of King Jesus is really ultimately the best news that will ever happen to you because of what this means. Especially if you, it means that you've been liberated from a subordinate and destructive power that ultimately exercises authority over you. Because the fact of the matter is every single one of us in this room, at some point, even right now in our lives, we have influences that are shaping how you think, what you love, what you will do with your time and your money and your energy and your sexuality, how you will steward these gifts that God has given you. And something influences us. If that something is either yourself or a combination of the things that are happening alive in this broader, bigger world, at some point that storyline, that narrative will lead you to a path of greater enslavement combined with shame and brokenness and disgust and dishonor. What Jesus does is he comes and he rescues us from these alternate narratives. And then he says, come, follow me. I'm the king that has come to liberate by challenging, by confronting the evil. This is what Jesus does. He doesn't just simply say, you're an amazing person, come follow me and you'll have life. Jesus says, no, the reality is, is that you are suffering under something so big, so great that unless it's dealt with, it will crush you. I was crushed for you to bear the weight of that thing so that you now can be given life. To live under the reign of King Jesus is actually the best news that could ever happen to any of us. So what's the summary of everything that Jesus is saying? I'll finish up with this thought. Again, Jesus goes on to say this. The time is fulfilled. Time is at hand. That the kingdom of God is now come. Then he says, repent and believe the gospel. So the invitation for us is to repent, to turn. Like, what does that mean? Like, again, depending upon what type of emotional baggage or religious baggage you bring to that word, that might be a dirty word because you heard a really angry preacher yell at you, repent, you are a horrible, evil, wicked person. Repent, you know? And so you may have that word. It might have a lot of baggage. But the word repent is actually this incredible word. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to become disloyal to whatever form or narrative or power or authority that was giving you life elsewhere to turn from that and then to turn to the one who actually loves you who gave himself for you this is what jesus invites us to to repent to turn and to believe or to receive the kingdom that god is bringing so i don't know what this looks like for each one of you because it's going to look different every one of us have different things that we struggle with. For some of us, 
It's an issue. The big issues in your life right now are issues of unforgiveness. You have people in your life that you cannot, or at least you think you cannot, forgive. And so you live according to this narrative of I will hold a grudge against them. And at some point, that narrative that exercises authority and control over you will crush you and destroy you. Others of you, you live under this narrative that says I always have to have a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Because that's how I find my identity. That's how I find my worth, by being able to have a warm body to sleep next to, even though they're not my spouse. So over and over and over again, it's a cycle of a new person in your life over and over again because the narrative says this is how you find value and worth. Others, it may be the sense of, of money, that you, you're bound by money. So you live in the scarcity mentality. So you greedily hold on to everything that you can and you live according to the standard of stinginess. Again, I, I don't know what it is for you. It's going to be different for all of us. But the invitation of the king is to say, I've arrived. The time has now come. The king, the true king, has come to take ownership. And what that looks like, beginning with people, like Jesus coming up to Peter and James and John, saying, hey you, leave your nets. Come follow me. And they do. It looks like Jesus coming to you and saying, hey you, wherever you're at, whatever you're holding on to, Whatever those things are that are in your hand right now, that are you, you are using to prop yourself up, to give yourself an identity, leave that behind. Come follow me, and I'll give you life. What it means for Jesus to be king is to live according to an entirely new rule and idea and authority in your life. And the invitation is now for us to respond. And as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we sing, as we respond, as we pray, the invitation for you is to consider the level of sacrifice that Jesus has made. Not because he had to, not out of obligation, but because of his incredible love for you. So, we're going to stand and respond. How about we all do that now? I'll have the worship team come on up. I'm going to pray. If you're here this morning and there are circumstances in your life, for some of you, this might actually look like you leaving your seat. And as you come up and you partake of communion, to find a spot in one of these rugs, to just kneel before the king. Kneeling seems to be a rightful response before a king. And just confessing to him those areas in your life whereby you have tried to be the one that will discern and decide right from wrong, good from evil. Where that may be something that God is saying, it's time for you to recognize that the path that you're on of implementing that truth is actually leading to you to more complicated brokenness and destruction. Receive my kingdom. Receive my, as Jesus would say, my yoke upon you. You become part of the community that I'm building. Repent and believe the gospel. So again, I'm not sure where you're at, but let's give some space for God to move in our hearts, to move in this place. Again, for some, it might look like physically leaving the seat and coming and kneeling before God up here. Or coming and kneeling and maybe having some others pray for you. I'll be up here to pray. We'll have some other leaders up here to pray. For some of you, maybe you have areas of sickness or brokenness in your life or fears that are gripping you and controlling you and they're exercising its authority over you so much so that the very thought of even leaving your seat and somehow being a spectacle is like frightening. Like, no way, I would never, ever, ever do that. But maybe that's just the very thing that God is saying, I want to set you free from because you're bound by these things. You're, you're bound by the fear of other people. I want to deliver you. Maybe it's fears of sickness and death. Jesus wants to deliver. So, 
Let's do business with God. Let me pray. My invitation, as soon as I'm done praying, is I'll have you come on up. If that's you, just be prayed for or just pray. If you don't, if you don't want to be prayed for, it's fine. You can just get before God and just space between you and God and do business with him. You partake of communion. And we're reminded of his love. So let me pray and let's respond.